All right, welcome back to the Founder-Led Marketing Show. In today's episode, we talk to Anurag Gupta, who is the founder and CEO at Shoreline. And in this episode, we explore the founding story, why he decided to leave a really good job as a VP at AWS to start this company, the fifth or fourth company that he started, lessons that he's learning as he's growing it, how they got their first customers, how they approach selling it to mid-market and enterprise as a startup. I hope there's something in there. I hope you enjoy. And without further ado, here's Anurag Gupta. Thank you for joining, Anurag. I think, you know, obviously you, you're the founder and CEO of Shoreline. Maybe you can just, as a little intro, give like a little intro about Shoreline, what you guys do, what problems you guys solve, and just two sentences about yourself, maybe what you did before starting Shoreline, so people have a little bit of context. Sure. Uh, so Shoreline is basically tries to provide the last mile for production ops. Everybody's got observability tools. Everybody's got incident management tools. But after your observability tool uh, alarms about an issue, after it's assigned to somebody, the process becomes totally manual. And so that's the problem we try to solve, that we try to automatically create runbooks with GPT, um, generative AI. We um, have a curated set of runbooks, uh, I think over 200 at this point hopefully a thousand this time next year to really uh, give people the tools they need. We help them pinpoint issues so that, you know, because diagnostics is the hardest part of live issues. And then, you know, almost half the issues that people run into are straightforward and mundane. And so we help them automate those away. So that's the core of what we do. Would you uh, say, sorry, uh, just maybe for people who might not be in, in, you know, in your industry and don't know uh -huh. runbooks and automation, is it a fair kind of summary that you help people, uh, companies who have major services hosted in the cloud, so AWS, Azure, to improve mm -hmm. uptime um, and availability of these services so that when exactly. they go down, they're up faster, it happens less often, et cetera? That's exactly it. And uh, a lot of the thesis for Shoreline emerges from my prior experience over eight years at Amazon Web Services, where I ran database and analytics. And, uh, you know, that's where I really learned the difference between operating a service and shipping software. Because if you ship software, it's somebody else's problem to keep it up. If you run a service, it's yours. And mm. you really, you know, start to understand and share your customer's pain, which in the long run is a good thing, but in the you know, it certainly creates another burden. You know, I mean, no one cares about your features or performance uh, if it isn't up. So maybe that's a good way to talk about that founding moment. So you were seven or eight years at AWS in a very senior role. Was there like one aha moment that, that you had? Was it like a slow kind of realization that there must be a better way? Was there something like that for you? Well, I guess the real moment for me was the difference between how AWS and the other hyperscalers, Azure, GCP, manage uh, production and our customers uh, do, you know, how they do it. I mean, the dirty secret of the cloud is, is that customers spend almost five times as much on the people to manage their cloud infrastructure as the cloud infrastructure itself. And it's not like anyone saying like, oh, my cloud bill is too low. And so, you know, it just means that the people costs of dealing with these things is super high. You know, there are a lot of different aspects to that problem. I personally found that the outages were the most significant because you can't control when uh, they occur. Might mm -hmm. happen in the 
middle of the night, might happen on the weekend, might happen during a wedding, right? I mean, it's hard to say. And, uh, you know, it's very different than, say, controlling deployments, which are more under your own control. So you realize the problem, but what was that moment where you said, let's spin it out and start our own company rather than trying to optimize within AWS, building something there, you know? Yeah, you know, I guess... Uh, over my time at AWS, it grew from about 3 million to about 5 billion, uh, my services. And, you know, when I started, there were, they gave me eight people and said, go disrupt data warehousing and transaction processing. I'd just come from Oracle, which had 5,000 people working on that problem and the 30-year head start. So, wow. you know, it's a bit of a challenge, right? But uh, the thing of it is, is that you know, you got to know what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. And I'm much better at the creative force of, you know, zero to 60, building a service, you know, getting it going and so forth, rather than being the steady hand on the tiller for something that's already at scale. Right. Uh, you know, I'm not, I get kind of bored by that. And I also, a lot of my own skills are not, don't play well into that. So, you know, the question was what to do, where to go. And, you know, that's what led me to getting back into the startup gig. You know, this is my fourth startup in various roles. So, you know, I, I'm familiar with this world. I'm better at this stuff, I think, than, uh, you know, working at a bigger company. And so do I hear, right, that what attracted you to join AWS was the fact that it was almost like a mini startup within it, that, you know, you had a small team and you had this big incumbent that you had to figure out how to kind of compete against with Oracle? Um, yeah, I mean, Oracle, uh, AWS and Amazon generally is always about customers, not competition. So, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the fact that, you know, there were other incumbents there wasn't as important as the opportunity to better serve customers. So, you know, credit to them, um, you know, sort of teaching that to me. But uh, I think the breadth and scope of the opportunity uh, relative to, uh, you know, that is what attracted me to AWS in the early going. I mean, my wife refused to move, refused to move to Seattle because she said, the job they're giving you is impossible to get done and you're gonna get fired. So. I'm not moving. <laughs> She's super supportive in general, but you know, she really didn't think that this was going to happen. Wait, but did she end up moving? No, we always uh, we've been in the Bay Area basically our wow. entire careers. Wow. Well, okay. So you you saw that problem at AWS. You decided that with your kind of entrepreneurial streak that it's time to get back into the arena. How did the I think you you founded this in 2019. Did I see that correctly? Is that kind of sure. the what you initially started with to what it is today now? You know, almost you know four and a half, almost five years later, changed. Did it change in a major way? Is it basically the same idea concept that you had in the beginning? Um, I would say it's uh, the same idea, although the importance of different characteristics had have changed. You know, I personally still strongly believe that automation is the answer and what people really need is the ability to, uh, you know, remove all of the drudgery of, you know, repetitive incidents. Um, what I find from our customer base is, is that they're further behind 
And so the ability to create uh, run books is important to them. I even talked to Fortune 10 companies that don't really have, uh, you know, run books up, you know, that really represent what they need, which is really a challenge when people leave and new people join because you can't control who's on call when an event occurs. That was learning the fact that they really have challenges diagnosing an issue was uh, more so than the repair was learning. So, you know, I think uh, it's really about uh, not the core idea being wrong. It's about uh, meeting people where they are today. And and so do I assume correctly that, you know, with your seven years at, at AWS that the first couple of customers you went to your network or how, how did you approach getting those first initial users or customers? Yeah, um, a lot of my customers come through either my own direct network or those of my uh, uh, VC investors. But I mean, finally, you know, I mean, so they may be friends, but I don't have such good friends that they'll give me 100K to- <laughs> You don't? No, sad but true. And so, you know, it's uh, so it does happen. They'll take a meeting. They'll, uh, it hopefully makes sense to them. But uh, it, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you have to earn the right to have their business. Right. Makes total sense. And so, like, when I look at your crunch base, it, did you, you went straight to a series A? Maybe that's just a quirk to, to me. But, you know, in most cases, I guess, the first step is reading a seat, raising a seat round. Did you skip so, that level? I did. I mean, yeah, I think uh, whether something is a seed or an A. Semantics. It's semantics, right? But uh, my take was, is I only get to leave AWS once. And that's when I have the highest leverage within, you know, prospective investors. So let me raise as much as I can at that mm. moment. If I give more of the company away. And, you know, that, the flip side of it is, is that then I can focus on building and a product and selling it more so than, you know, staying in that continual VC hunt where then you're also a little bit at the mercy of, you know, what the uh, uh, currents around you are. Like, am I a Web 3.0 company? Am I a crypto company? Am I now a uh, AI company, yeah. right? And you can just focus on what your customers need. So that has been, yeah, I think that was good. Now, the flip side of it, of course, is, is that you can get a little bit uh, complacent if you have mm -hmm. a lot of money to think. The challenge with this is to have that same degree of um, existential dread, almost as, uh, right. you know, something who only has 12 months of revenue, uh, uh, sorry, of uh, funding as if you, even if you have years. Right. So what's your approach? I mean, what would you, how did you approach it? What would you, what would you tell people? Do you do it right? Well, do you I'm make... generally filled with existential dread on an everyday <laughs> basis. So but how not... do you impart it to the team? You don't want the team to be filled with concerns about whether their paychecks will clear ever, mm -hmm. whether you have three months of runway or you have three years of runway, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it just is a distraction that is, uh, you know, kind of freezes them. So I uh, think the question really is, how do you maintain sort of relentless focus? How do you 
minimize the work we do. And, you know, I think we did uh, some good things there and maybe we could have done things better. I mean, for, with 2020 hindsight, there are always things you could do better. What do you think are some things you could have done better? And what are some things that you that you did well, if you reflect on? Because I mean, you know, like the reason why I focus on it is because I think that is a really critical issue, right? I mean, people talk about speed of execution is really important. So, you know, as a founder, you might have a big drive because you have stakeholders, you have investors, you have your reputation at stake, employees might not. So I would uh, say the biggest... Uh mistake was we perhaps built too broadly like for example we built a lot of metrics and ingestion and things of that nature and then it turned out that people really just uh, wanted their existing observability solutions and wanted us to take things forward from the alarm point and so you know i think eventually you know in the distant future we'll likely, uh, you know, a lot of the tech we built uh, for doing operations at the edge will come back to help, but uh, uh, we probably could have delayed that work. The big mistakes are always where you made, uh, you had a misapprehension about what your market wanted and you spent a lot of time building uh, the wrong thing or the not immediate thing. And is that just a function of not talking enough to customers, not being close enough to them? Or if you go back, how could you make yourself without not, not having the benefit of hindsight? I mean, I think talking to customers is always the right thing to do. Right. I would guess that we did speak to a lot of them, but uh, I don't know. You know, even so, I think uh, perhaps the mistake there was I was still uh, had the AWS mindset of build a big rather than the startup mindset mindset of you know minimum viable product or things of that nature right so how long did you guys spend building the product versus when did you start selling it or did you sell right away a couple of years maybe two and a half years so you start the company in january 2019 so like mid 2021 is when you start selling roughly yeah. How did you decide that it was time to sell? What did you see? What was the threshold that you wanted to see before you go out into the market? What it really comes to is when is someone willing to buy? You know, do you have you built enough that they say like, okay, yeah, I, I'm willing to take a bet on you even as your first customer. So, but for that, you need to be selling, right? So during the two and a half yeah, years, I mean, so you kept having conversations. To, yeah, you're always having conversations, right? You have to find out where the intercept happens. And so once you waited, you kept having conversation, you waited until that first person kind of committed and said, yep, this is enough for me to, did you have a threshold of like, because you probably would have been able to get people earlier, you could have like offered a lower price tag, you could have ordered like a free pilot for six months, I don't know, like, right? Yes. How did you decide that? What was the threshold that someone... Did you have like a number in your head that only once people are willing to pay this much, we know that there's something there? No, not so much. It's more just that uh, for people to trust you to change their production environments, I mean, that's a very high bar. Right. It's different than observability. It's different than deployments. It's uh, it's a more challenging problem to set off solving. I would argue it's a more valuable problem to set out to solve. So 
which is why there's hardly anybody else in the space. But right. uh, I think uh, if my take was if I can do it, then hopefully over time uh, it becomes uh, hugely valuable. But I, I didn't have a problem with the early days being difficult. How do you have any advice, you know, startup selling into mid-market and enterprise, right? If you don't have that PLG motion, you don't have that free trial, you don't sell a seven bucks per month tool, but you sell large ACV deals into mid-market and enterprise, and you are that startup, you don't have a track record, you don't have any case studies, you've not been in market long, are there any, anything you, you feel like now that you've sold a couple of these deals that you would tell founders who are in that kind of difficult situation? on how to approach it? Uh, interesting question. The uh, challenge with doing uh, the PLG motion or the open source motion or something is that you can feel successful even though you're not successful. Mm. Like I've got 100 customers. I've got a 200 customers. I'm feeling really good, but I'm making, you know, at your seven bucks a month, 1400 a month. Yeah. The question really is that uh, are you better off trying to have 10 customers and a million dollars of revenue? Or are you better off having, uh, uh, you know, 10,000 customers and a million dollars in revenue? I mean, they're both hard problems. What you have to figure out is uh, which is the easier problem for the particular product you're trying to sell to the particular market to which you're trying to sell. I mean, could I have sold like runbook, uh, automated runbook generation to at seven bucks a month? Maybe, mm -hmm. you know, maybe I should do that now. I don't know. <laughs> you know but uh, the point, you know, is that I think it's, it is a very different motion. I don't know that people will easily deploy automated repair into their infrastructure without a lot of kicking the tires. So if a company decides they're going to go that sales-led route, they're going to sell into mid-market and enterprise, how do you get that first deal? Like, did you have to offer massive discounts, like super tight SLAs, you know, promising the world? Or is it just like, keep trying, no, keep trying, and eventually no, someone... No, it's all of that, right? Because, uh, and I think, you know, early customers get great deals. Yeah. That's really the reason also to work with a startup, right? Mm. I mean, as, you know, I remember talking to a large customer in my last startup and we were competing with another incredibly well-funded startup as well as Oracle for that deal. And, you know, but we we're the only ones that completely did a hundred percent of the POC. And, you know, I remember in my closing comments to them, I was saying that, look, Oracle doesn't really care whether mm. you're successful. You know, most IT projects fail, but I will promise you that we will die before you're unsuccessful because your success is our success. It's your lifeline. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. that's different from other people. And, you know, you need something, we will rush out and build it for you, right? I mean, now that can feel always a little bit desperate to a customer, right? But uh, that is finally the reason for people to work with the startup because you're getting that leverage and working with incredibly talented, passionate people who want nothing more than to spend 
16 hours a day working on your problems. How do you think about when you get those first initial customers and, you know, they're big accounts, so they make up, you know, all of your revenue or majority of your revenue and mm -hmm. the types of requests, feature requests, recommendations that they have, what of those are valuable customer feedback to just build a great product? And what are those might lead you down a path where you just build a custom solution for this one enterprise customer that then you don't have a repeatable process there? We never build uh, custom one-offs. Everything we do is basically learning from somebody that could be applied to somebody else. It's just uh, what we're getting from them are the fine details of how to build, for example, approval workflows. Now, I mean, there is one, one of our customers has 30,000 uh, nodes under management, you know, a couple of hundred thousand containers. They, we had to do some special stuff to scale to that, you know, to that scope. Right. I don't know uh, when other people will, you know, rise to that scale, but, you know, I think right. the fact that the ceiling is high gives a sense of comfort to people with, you know, 5,000 nodes, right? So the, the question is basically, if I build this feature that they're requesting, is it something that I can roll out to all of my customers and they will all benefit or a majority of them versus what is something that's super unique to just their use case and I won't be able to roll it into the product? Well, I mean, I always roll everything into the product. The question is, there's a difference between, is it relevant just to this uh, one customer right now? For example, that scale point mm -hmm. versus uh, is it uh, something that will be relevant to future right. customers as well, right. right? And that's where, you know, like sort of the truly bespoke things become, uh, in general, we don't do. Right, makes sense. I mean, obviously, there's a customer side aspect to that as well, right? How did you think about um, customer profile? You know, one of the things people say that you need to define your ICP. Did you go going into this had educated guesses? Did you talk with a bunch of different verticals and industries and you just saw what stuck? How did you approach like figuring out who might be able to like get the most out of your product? A little bit of all of the above. I mean, finally... Um... What you do is you figure out where you're getting success and you double down on it, right? And there have been, uh, of course, you know, the last uh, several years have been challenging, right? First with COVID and next with uh, roughly a crash in tech right. uh, totally. industry, right? So, you know, we've had to uh, move this way, that way a little bit and to try to find things that perhaps were off of the ice you know the initial icp as a result of that but uh you know i think we're kind of getting back to that initial icp we'll see i mean it continues to be a challenging world more startups failed this uh, this year than any time in the last five years really wow yeah. i didn't know that's that because yeah. of the i mean people call it the SaaS recession right i, th I heard david Sachs and Jason Lemkin talk about it as a software recession. What you want to think about there is the equity price premium over uh, bonds. So you might have, you know, like when uh, uh, bonds, the U.S. treasuries were essentially zero, you know, the equity price premium is typically about 3%. So that means that... So 3% uh, so more than what the 
kind of bond rate is that you know your risk-free uh, risk -free. at three percent that means you're you should be willing to pay a pe of uh, 30 right what's the pe a uh, price to earnings ratio okay uh-huh or at a startup maybe it's right. more yep. growth or you know so everyone was incentivized to maximize their growth rate growth at all costs right it was in a very rational way startups were getting incredible valuations so then you suddenly get to a world where risk-free premium for a treasury is like 5%, maybe a little bit higher. So now that's eight for a stock. So that means you're at 12 for a PE. So your stock valuation has dropped by two thirds and it's no longer, you know, growth at all costs because, you know, money isn't free anymore. And so, you know, the challenge for a lot of companies has been that uh, their last round valuation and their current round valuation might be incredibly different, even though the company itself is doing better. That's why, you know, if you call it a SaaS recession or a tech recession or, you know, whatever recession, it's just a question of, uh, you know, the reason is, is that uh, equities, particularly uh, in high tech, we're based on a price earnings growth ratio yeah. and now it's uh, that's collapsed and it won't come back until uh, you know interest rates go back down. So you you raise your series A or seed or wherever, whatever you mm -hmm. want to call it in, in 2019 you raise a series B in 2010 2022 and it's a I would say it's a big series B right 35 million I mean this is all public public mm -hmm. data and that was you know at the height i would say of of you know the the sas i don't know if you want to call it a bubble tech bubble did you now with you know hindsight is 2020 did you have the foresight at that point that probably evaluations are inflated and that probably you want to be careful with the money and not you know grow at all costs right now and preserve i would say i actually raised about six months later than mm -hmm. uh, the peak mm -hmm. If I'd uh, raised uh, six months earlier, I might have gotten a valuation twice as high. And so we were already starting to see, uh, you know, sort of the severe drop. You're going to be sitting around the table with your investors for years and years and years. So for me, the biggest question is, what is the quality of the individuals? How supportive will they be in hard times? Because mm -hmm. everyone drinks champagne with you. That's easy, right? Uh, the question is, Will they put effort in uh, when uh, times are tough? Or are they going to go on and spend their energy on one of their you know, investments that's doing really well? And, you How know, do you know that? How do you, like, can you interview for that? Can you? No, or is you, it... I mean, kind of, you gauge for intellectual curiosity. You see what their other uh, investments do. You see how long they stay with them. You see whether they're proud of investments, mm -hmm. regardless of how, or their founders, regardless of whether mm -hmm. uh, it's the most successful founder or, you know, someone else, you know, you see what they're looking for in you and you just see if, you know, this is someone you would think would be supportive or not. And I think across the board, I have an incredible set of investors. You know, I mean, everyone's money is the same. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but uh, it's, uh, I think as individuals, you know, they're, I'm, I've been very fortunate 
with this group. Did you at that point when you raised that Series B, given that it was already down for the from the peak, and I don't know what your investors told you, was it already okay? You raised a good round. Let's you know be careful here, or was it still okay? Let's pour gasoline on the fire. Let's. So we were already out of the world of you know pour gasoline on the fire. We we're mm -hmm. you know, really believed in you know growth at all costs anymore. You know, and, you know, I'm not the guy to be like growth at all costs anyway. So, you know, I'm more the disciplined, you know, like, let's build it right. Let's get companies happy. You know, let's, uh, you know, like, I think in my series B, you know, I gave, obviously gave re customer references to them. They also back with every single one of my customers. Mm. And they were shocked that they were all happy. And that for them was quite unusual. It meant that, you know, however, you know, badly we were, do, you know, doing in terms of overall revenue or whatever, we at least had product. Now navigating this, you know, software recession, is there anything, any advice that you might have for founders who are maybe at an earlier stage, maybe they raised a series A at an overinflated valuation and now they have to live up to it? Or is there anything or, or, you know, founders who might just be starting how to navigate this environment? Finally, the most important thing is mindset here. A few years ago, let's say three years ago, it might have seemed like I get funded for whatever random idea and two years from now I'm a billion. And, you know, there were companies like that, right? And uh, so you can't, you have to believe that it's a 10-year journey. And so the there are two questions then. Do you have the fortitude? Do you have the economic wherewithal to be able to spend 10 years doing this while all your friends, coworkers, people who used to report to you are making 10 times more than you, right? And they're enjoying huge success, you know, at later stage environments. And, you know, are, are you just going to be like, okay, laser focused, this is my... This is my job. This is what I'm doing. It doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. Because if you start benchmarking, that's death. Because you'll always have a lot of doubts. And then, you know, like on the, the other point is, is that, look, yeah, I mean, it's low tide right now, but the tide comes in, right? Goes out, it comes in. There are all these things. The question is, can you survive, you know, both mentally, you know, with your family, with, uh, and, uh, you know, do you have uh, enough money in the bank to get past it and figure it out is it tough yes it's always tough can i ask you a personal question then i mean <laughs> you know you you had i think you mentioned this is your fourth startup or you had this is your fifth startup so you know what it takes you just mentioned the 10 years you are eight at aws and you know i'm sure that's a cushy job being a vice president at aws i don't want to say you're not young anymore because it's always perspective but at that stage at your life thinking about okay i need to commit 10 years to this if i really want to do this yep how did you think about it was it just no question you were just bored at aws was it you know, what did your wife say when you said, okay, I want to go back to starting from scratch and building a company from zero again? You know, like, how did you think about that life decision? Well, I mean, I'm incredibly fortunate in having married up. And uh, he's, always <laughs> been, 
<laughs> you know, super, super supportive, you know, to, uh, you know, almost an irrational degree of all my, uh, you know, nonsense. I would also say that there are, to my knowledge, no cushy jobs at AWS. You, mm. Everyone, perhaps. but, uh, you know, you get, you get paid more than you are going to pay yourself, right? You know, I've always had, sorry, I'll start with this. I've always uh, been blessed or cursed with the fact that I know what my long-term goals are. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they shift, but I've always had clarity about them. The thing you need to understand is if you're not on the path to your goal, you need to change your path or you need to change your goal. Life is actually that simple. Hmm. You know, I've had that conversation with so many people who, you know, would come to me for advice. They'd basically say like, Do, should I take this or should I take that? It's almost like they're asking a GPS system whether it should make a left turn or a right turn. The question is, where the heck are you trying to go? Right. Unless you know where you're trying to go, it's actually an illogical question, right? AWS was a great experience, an amazing experience uh, for me, but uh, I wasn't on the path to my goal. I think there is a quote, I don't know where, but basically says, uh, be careful where you're going because you might actually end up where you're heading. You know, in software, we, we worked with software companies. There's this whole craze about AI, obviously, after ChatGPT launched, and now every startup is incorporating AI. Every, you know, company that gets funded nowadays still seems to be an AI company. How did you approach, and maybe also from your perspective, what was the investor expectation? Like, was it that, you know, people said, you need to do this? Was it that you got excited? Was it that it just made sense from a product perspective? Like, talk to me about, like, how this whole AI craze affected you guys as a, as a company and your product and your roadmap? You know, we started thinking about transformer models probably a year ago, which is well before GPT came out. And we got, you know, I remember the first uh, board meeting I had where we started talking about this. Everyone was like super confused. Like, mm. what are you doing? You know, and this is in terms of automated runbook creation using uh, generative AI. The question is whether people are AI washing now, you know, like just mm -hmm. making their products seem AI, just like they were cloud washing uh, in each of the generational changes, mm -hmm. but, uh, or whether they're truly doing something fundamental and significant. Cohere has been around for four years now. You know, they've been doing transformer models for that length of time, just like, you know, open AI and, yeah, you know, so yeah, we've all are the world is starting to pay attention now. But you know, these companies have been trying to build for some time. So you guys already had some talks about you know AI and and leveraging generative AI. Mm -hmm. When when ChatGPT launched, was it a major shift of like, okay, this is real now. We need to allocate a lot more resources to that idea. Or was it already on the way? And it's like, okay, now it just seems like a little bit more accepted, so we can talk about it. The difference was that uh, I think it made more sense to people that we were doing automated runbook creation. The quality of solution, has, I mean, has gotten better and better and better you know, month over month. Right. So I think uh, that's been the 
dominant difference that we can build better products now than we could you know a year ago using you know really the same tech stack you know in part due to better prompt engineering in part due to uh learning in part just due to you know better uh technology on you know that we're leveraging obviously founders should think about if ai can actually help make the product better core at the core or whether it's just plastered on top to have a buzzword in there you know you guys are selling into technical people right you're not selling mm -hmm. into marketers you're selling into engineers sres do you feel like putting ai on top of it helps or is it almost the opposite now where it's so commoditized everyone says they are ai powered and uh that it's almost like shooting yourself in the foot my take is that there's a point when it's just another tool in the toolbox you know whether i'm using a crescent wrench or a socket uh you know wrench doesn't matter to anybody um what matters to them is is it simpler is it faster is it easier and i do think that the core of what we're trying to provide to people is you know that they get their problems solved faster their problems not you know sort of i mean at the end of the day how much do they care about my tech stack underneath the covers right they shouldn't let me ask you this is a little bit of a tangent but i'm a big fan of the i don't know if you know them of the founders of basecamp jason fried and dhh and 37 mm. signals and they've mm. kind of been vocal lately about the fact that they got rid of their cloud services and actually building servers again yeah. and given that you're in that space you have a stake in the game i'm just curious your thoughts on that do you feel like that's just them trying to be contrarian is that going to be a real movement does it make sense that it not make sense etc you know i don't know i don't know enough of the details of what they did the question for me is is aws more expensive than getting your own servers yes particularly when you can get your servers you know like used at, you know and so forth right do people underestimate the the cost of actually operating servers also yes you know no one thinks about the expense of having new servers that they bring in they are of the data centers the heating the cooling you know power uh you know that's just infrastructure costs is roughly half of a hyperscaler's bill uh you know in terms of their cost structure underneath the covers so you know if you think you're just paying you can get uh things for just the 25% of getting the dell server or whatever yeah sure i mean that's true there's a point at which it doesn't scale and you might not be able to get the upgrades you might not be able to get the h100s that they can get you know whatever you know i mean obviously aws does have margin right we can all see that cool um we're, we're approaching oh, our way, and as uh, jeff bezos used to say you know your margin is my opportunity so their so, margin is now other people's opportunity yeah there you go right coming back around what is um maybe besides jeff bezos because i know you you know you study him are there any other founders or CEOs that, that you're following, studying, learning from? Not so much. I think, you know, my goals are not about being a better founder so much as being a better human being. I'm more, in terms of studying, you know, I try to think about how to be a better person more so than how to be a better How do you founder. define a good 
human being? What makes a good human being? Well, that, I mean, that's a r- really good question, right? I mean, I think it's different for each person, what they think of, you know. But I guess, you know, what I say would say to you is if you envision your eulogy, uh, you know, what are they, who is there? What are they saying about you? What is the difference you made on their lives? Because your economic successes, you know, they pass, right? The impact you have on other people potentially can be lasting, whether in an abstract way or otherwise, right? Are there any people then, if you don't follow founders and CEOs, is there anyone then you follow to become a better human or you listen to or pay attention to? Yeah, I mean, several. What I always think about are people who see a problem out there in the world and say, this problem I must solve. You could argue founders are a form of that, right? Right. I remember, you know, I met Mohammed Yunus uh, years before he uh, won the Nobel Prize for his work with microfinance and the Grameen Bank and so forth. And, you know, back then he told a story about, you know, he was a professor of economics in the U.S., which way back then was super hard to do as someone brown, right? And um, there was the war between Pakistan and India creating Bangladesh. He was from Bangladesh. And he said, I must go back. My country needs me. And he went back and he became an economics professor there. And, you know, he would, then he decided like, okay, let me go and take my class to the local village and try to see what uh, is causing, uh, you know, people to be poor. And he realized that it's really a fundamental lack of capital. And, uh, you know, like, how can some woman afford to get three chickens that lay eggs so that, you know, she can start the process of rising up as opposed to, you know, all these other things. And it was impossible to go to a bank and get a loan if you were at that layer. And that sort of was the root of microfinance. And so, you know, I, if you study his career or his story, there's element after element of like, this shall not stand. And, you know, you can see that in a lot of the people out there that one can respect, you know, the people who are in the civil rights movement mm-hmm. uh, or people who, uh, and, you know, also smaller folks, like there are people I know in India who just, you know, are like, oh, this particular thing is horrible. And since I see that it's horrible, I have to devote a large portion of my life to solve for it, whatever it is. And uh, I think um, that ability to see things that are wrong, the necessity of fixing the things that you see that are wrong is of fundamental importance in my view for you know to be a good human being as you you know since you to answer the question you posed earlier but you know it's also something that i think is fundamental for founders and that's what i think separates you know like founders who are successful uh as measured by monetary outcome from you know people who are in it to do the something that they believe is important Finally, we measure based on outcome, right? You know, but that outcomes uh, in entrepreneurship are very largely a matter of uh, luck. Well, Anurag, thank you so much for your time. I know 
that you're busy. So um, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure there will be a, a couple of nuggets for people who are, you know, a couple steps behind and just starting their company. So thank you. All right. Thank you guys. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.